0: This is Positive Parenting, parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Bratt.
1: Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Bratt, the founder of MrDad.com. Wanderlust boredom, frustration, whatever the reason, we have all had days where we wish we could pack our bags and just go somewhere, anywhere. But for a variety of reasons, maybe it's job, spouse, kids, responsibilities, most of us don't do it. But in this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with a guy who did exactly that, left his daily life in New York and traveled the world with his wife and five kids in tow. Watching the sailboats on the Hudson River during his breaks, our guest dared to dream and craved a life that was full of more than just surviving day to day. And despite having no sailing experience, his wife's phobia of deep water and already being financially stretched, this family of seven turned their excuses into reasons and their fears into motivation as they set off on a voyage that ultimately took them 5,000 miles from New York to the Caribbean and back. Their journey included plenty of learning and adventure, showed them the value of doing things their own way, and most importantly, gave them time together as a family before their oldest daughter left for college. I'm Armin Brot. We'll start talking about a family's life-changing year on a sailboat when Positive Parenting continues right after this. I'm in almost every school bus
0: and classroom. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me. We are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. My guest for this part of today's show is Eric Orton, who's the co-author with his wife, Emily, of Seven at Sea, Why a New York City Family Cast-Off Convention for a Life-Changing Year on a Sailboat. Eric, thanks for joining us.
2: Hey, thank you, Armin. It's great to be with you. A
1: life-changing year on a sailboat sounds scary. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, especially when you know, looking at, at the fact that your wife was not a big fan of open water and you guys hadn't spent a whole lot of time on boats. What on earth was going through your mind when you decided to do this?
2: Uh, well, on on at first glance, it might look and sound scary, but we took it very slowly and deliberately, and we, we inked our way up to this one. It wasn't just a chuck it all, you know, quit your job go buy a sailboat and figure it out. We actually took many years learning how to sail as a family, uh, getting comfortable in the water, being safe. Uh, you know, we I worked downtown near the financial district doing kind of a night temp job that was paying the bills at the time, and I was just unhappy with what I was doing and uh, wanted to do something that would kind of fill me with life and enthusiasm, and there was this sailing school downstairs, and I would go for my walks along the river when I took dinner breaks and just saw these sailboats going up and down at sunset and it looks peaceful and beautiful. And I thought I wanted to learn how to sail. And on the one hand, I felt very intimidated by it because I never really grew up sailing. I don't come from a sailing home or family and didn't know anything about it. And it always felt like it was for, for other people, for rich people. You know, we've (laughs) always lived off of a very middle-class average income, but my wife encouraged me and I, took this leap and just stepped from land onto the dock and walked into the sailing school and asked them how this all worked. And they were very kind and welcoming. And they explained that as long as we had four people, they could create a class for us. Because my schedule was a little tricky. And so um, I couldn't find anybody else to do it with me. So I recruited my wife, Emily, (laughs) and our two oldest daughters, who were 11 and nine at the time. Our kids are. Basically, ten years from the oldest to the youngest, so it was uh eleven years old with our oldest and uh two year, yeah I guess what would that be uh, <laughs> a year old with our youngest um and we just started sailing and we sailed for the, you know a few weeks. Emily and I took the test and we passed, and that got us a little card that said we you know most people would rent us a boat for a few hours or half a day and and then gradually over, you know, the next few we went and we found a sailboat, a place out in New Jersey that was rent to us for a half a day. And we took the kids out, all five kids. And it was a complete disaster.
0: They, <laughs> you know, the,
2: the We realized that the younger three kids had never stepped foot on a boat. And as soon as it tipped sideways, they were just shrieking at the top of their lungs and, and uh, you know, and I was getting flustered and we were running into pylons as we tried to pull out of the Harbor. And, we were just a mess and dropping stuff in the water and these speed boaters and jet skiers would just drive past and look at us and they were literally pointing and laughing at us. Uh, and so we, you know, it was a rocky start, but we got our yeah. act together and we, you know, proceeded season to season, learning how to sail, um, on slightly bigger boats and bigger water and taking Emma and I would take a trip every now and then to the Caribbean to get certified. And then I think it was five years from when we first, sailed to when we actually bought a boat and moved aboard, and and uh, so it was a gradual thing, and we brought the kids along with us, and they were a part of it the whole way, and so mm-hmm. it, th- there was nothing knee-jerk about it. It was, it was right. very deliberate and steady. Not, I'm not a big fan of taking unnecessary risks.
1: <laughs> so, but you had a child in there with Down syndrome. Correct. Which obviously makes an even complicated issue even more complicated, how how did you deal with that and and how was that child able to deal with the boat
2: yeah lily is our youngest and she has down syndrome and and we uh we homeschool our kids we've been doing that for a long time and uh she has always really thrived being in a place where she's got lots of siblings and plenty of people to interact with her and she had a whole bunch of therapists that would come over. I think we at one point we had i want to say four therapists four times a week. So it was like 16 therapist appointments. Wow. And and it was just a lot. And uh, you know, it was great because she was progressing and they cared about her, uh, but at some point we kind of just said, you know, we wonder if maybe a little bit less might be fine because it was starting to really impact our other kids, you know, and they, they loved Lily and they supported her, but also it meant that they had to be home because we homeschooled. They basically had to, to, Emily had to come back home because I was at work and they had to be here. And, and so they felt kind of tethered. And we explored this idea of scaling it back, which we did. The therapists were you know supportive for a trial run. and We did that. And because, Emily and the kids weren't as tied to home. They were able to get out more and do more field trips and go on excursions. And going into those new places and new experiences and being able to have, instead of just always being cooped up in our apartment, because we live in a two-bedroom apartment in New York City, and that's only so much space. And her being in new places actually boosted her progress and her growth, and all the therapists agreed. And, and it wasn't overnight, but eventually we decided, decided that, you know, if being in new places and, and having new experiences and, and real tangible things, not just on paper or on a screen, were, you know, were a gateway to her growth, then we just like going out on, our, on a boat and, and having this time as a family could really be beneficial rather than detrimental, especially for Lily. And, and so that was, that was very much a part of our, our decision-making process on what would be good for our kids all of our kids, including mm-hmm. Lily, and it felt like being on the boat could actually really, you know, help her in, in what she in her growth.
1: And how did she do? Did she was she interested in, in the whole thing? Did she find it therapeutic or relaxing or scary? What uh, was what was her take on it?
2: Oh, she she loved it. I mean we all had we all had stressful moments and some scary moments, you know, as anybody would have in their life over the course of a year. But Lily, she's just really has a magical, special power. And she's by and large, very um, cheerful and happy and optimistic. And she, um, she makes friends wherever she goes. And she helped us make friends being in new places and new islands. And and as we would just show up and want to make friends quickly. And she went from being a non-swimmer to being a very strong swimmer. And we had, we had, Pretty strict rules on safety uh, because because her and her her brother, who's our, our fourth child, our, our only son, they did not swim when we went out on this trip. And so we said, you know, starting out, you have to wear your life jacket anytime you're on deck. If you're below deck in your cabin, you're, you know, and wear anchor, you don't have to wear a life jacket. But if you're above deck, you have to wear a life jacket, and you have to be clipped into a jack line, which is basically a, a rope that runs the length of the boat so that if something happened and they fell overboard, they literally can't go anywhere. And, and, but, you know, we'd spend time at anchor and they would jump off the back of the boat with their siblings and practice swimming in life jackets. And they just got better and stronger and more capable. And eventually Lily, Lily always wore a life jacket whenever she was in the water, but she, she just became this confident swimmer. Um, she was great with people. She, her, her speech grew, her, um, you know, her, her cognitive abilities. And, and so as a parent, just from like an education and intellectual standpoint, it was great for her. And, and socially, it was great for her and, and the rest of us as well. So I, I feel like it was a win in all directions.
1: And when you presented this idea of after the the years of preparation of what do you guys think about packing up and living on a boat for a year? How did that go over?
2: You know, it's, it's a great question, Irwin, because, uh, I don't know that I ever pitched it in a in a direct way. Emily has this memory that she shared with me and, and I was I was there so I remember it too. But we were um you know, we'd gone sailing, we'd sailed off and on as a family a couple of seasons and I had started to find, you know, videos, YouTube videos and blogs about other families that were out there and I would just watch them and sometimes I would email the link to Emily and share it with her and say isn't this kind of cool and then I would sit in the living room and watch them on the TV and my kids would gather around and and so they saw me getting interested in this and they would start to ask questions and so it never really came out of the blue and I remember there was one day though I was just standing looking into our living room leaning against the wall and my kids were there playing games and reading and Emily kind of snuggled up next to me and I said you know I think the seven of us on a boat for a long time be enough universe for me. And, and for some reason, this really melted Emily's heart because she, she's not, she's a homebody. She likes to stay in one place. And, and I said, you know, we, if, and I said, if we went out, then it wouldn't be like, we'd just be on the go constantly. We'd be able to have our home with us. We wouldn't have to be packing and unpacking. We'd have a kitchen and, and we'd have our clothes and it would just be kind of like in an RV, I guess that you just sort of move on the water and you take <laughs> it from place to place. And, and so and, you know, and I was like, you know, just think of all the time we could have together as a family. And so Emily really fell in love with, with that take on it. And then when we talked with the kids about it, um, they had seen enough of it that it wasn't a foreign concept to them. And they knew that it was there were hard, challenging, difficult aspects of it and that it wasn't always just fun, relaxing, sitting on a beach or, you know, hanging in a hammock and watching the sunset. They knew that it was a lot of work in many cases. And, but they, they were game. And in fact, they actually, you know, we talked about it long before we did it. We talked about it for a long time. And eventually one, t- one day at the, at a dinner table or breakfast table, where we have a meal as a family, we were talking about it yet again. And Karina, our oldest said, and I think she was about 14 at the time. She said, are you, do you guys have the guts to do this? Or are you just going to talk about it? <laughs> and, okay. And, and, like, she was sick of hearing the talk, and yeah. she wanted us to either do it or shut up about it. And we, we, you know, we kind of appreciated that. Like, she really wanted us to be credible. Yeah. We were going to do it. Yeah. We wanted to do it. And so at, at a certain point, they, I think Emily and I really helped each other hang in there with it until so it came together. But also our kids, we, they weren't going to let us off the hook. Right. We, we had to walk the walk.
1: Talking with Eric Orton, who's the co-author with Emily Orton of Seven at Sea, Why a New York City Family Cast-Off Convention for a Life-Changing Year on a Sailboat. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Eric. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Bradd. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Eric Orton, who's the co-author with Emily Orton of Seven at Sea, Why a New York City Family Cast-Off Convention for a Life-Changing Year on a Sailboat. And I uh, want to have you talk a little bit about, or maybe more than a little bit, about what kinds of things were going on during this year. Uh, you said that you had homeschooled the kids, so you obviously were, were continuing that. But were there was there something about living on the boat that was more conducive to education or less conducive to education or, or how how did, how did the education part fit in?
2: Emily and I care a lot about education for ourselves and for our kids. And, and a lot of people who go out on boats, because we know a lot of them, they, they have to make an educational shift. They, they start the homeschool so that they can go out on a boat. And we've been homeschooling already. And so for us, in many ways, it was just a, a continuation of what we'd already been doing. It was really just a, a change of venue. Uh, but we also believe that there's a lot to learn in life that you and, – and we love books. We've obviously written a book. Um, but we also think that there's so much that you can only learn by venturing out into the world and, and seeing it firsthand with your own eyes and smelling smells and tasting tastes and, and being in places. And we just felt like uh, we, you know, we wanted to see – Parts of the world for ourselves, but we also wanted to see it with our kids as a family, and uh, and we were genuinely surprised because we went out and you know and we we went through a very steep learning curve at first because we, we I think we got ourselves way in over our heads even despite all of our preparation we got out there and realized how much we did not know and we had right at the beginning what, what we call dreamer's remorse we're like you know we bought the boat we're here in the Caribbean and we're miserable <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, but, but we persevered through that, that tough patch that I think anybody goes through when they do something that feels big. And we had our, re- our regular rhythm of, of school and, and, and book learning, but then uh, we met other families that were out there with their kids. And, and I tell you, there was just something really uh, special about how these kids interacted uh, because First of all, they become very independent and competent kids because um, things are asked of them that are very real. You know, our kids would they would do night watches when we're doing overnight crossings, and so they would be in charge of the boat for two hours at a time as a pair, um, you know, while well, I'd go sleep a little bit. And, and so in some ways, they, they took on adult responsibilities that I think helped them mature and, and grow. Um, but then they would also get together with these kids, and they also... You know, they would swim back and forth between each other's boats and meet up, and they had these great projects like, you know, hey, let's, they would make a movie, and they'd write the screenplay and figure out all the parts, and they'd film it and, and edit it and, and screen it for us. Or, you know, one kid would know how to bake something, and the other kids didn't know how to bake at all, and so they would teach each other, or our kids play instruments, and so they taught all the other kids how to play ukulele and made a band and started writing and recording songs. And um, and then, of course, other things that just go along with life on a boat, like snorkeling and diving and uh, just underwater biology, marine biology, things like that, that they all got to see and experience firsthand. And so I think a lot of the best things that happened in their education were just because of putting them in a place where they could interact with new environments and new experiences, but also new kids who were also in a, a similar experience. And, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of times our job was just to get out of the way and and. Yeah. We, we tried to be very good at that. And uh, so from an educational standpoint, I think it, it served all of our kids well.
1: Did you have a plan before you left about where you wanted to go and how long you were going to stay and what you were going to learn in each place, or did you just kind of go?
2: We had a loose plan, I and mean, we knew that we wanted to fly to St. Martin where our boat was, and we wanted to, get, we wanted to spend time there just getting the, the basics put in place, making sure the boat was in good shape. And then we wanted to sail to the Virgin Islands because we had done two classes, or I guess one class in the Virgin Islands. We'd gone there and and spent a week with an instructor and learned a lot about navigation and taking care of all the systems on your boat, like the engine and plumbing. And so we kind of wanted to get to that spot because we knew we'd feel comfortable there and we'd know our way around. And we'd been there a couple of times with friends, chartering, trying out different kinds of boats before we purchased one. And, and then from there, we planned to sail through the Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, up to the Bahamas. And then once we got to the Bahamas, we figured we'd either head to Florida and sail up the coast, back to where we lived. Or if we were feeling really adventurous, we would cut across the Atlantic and um, see if we could get to uh, the Mediterranean, uh, which in hindsight was just you know ridiculous. <laughs> because uh, not, not because it hasn't been done or people don't do it, but we weren't ready for that. Uh, We didn't have enough time available in our, you know, we'd kind of blocked out this year and to do something like that, you know, you got to plan it with the seasons and we just, there was a lot we didn't know. And so we had this rough idea and um, I was, I was very go, go, go kind of still stuck in my life in New York city where it's fast paced and things happen on a schedule and, and they're very predictable. And once you get on a boat and you're dealing with the ocean and especially in the Caribbean, you you need to really humble yourself. At least I needed to humble myself and just realize that there are bigger forces at play and and I could not change hurricane season no matter how much I tried. And, you know, things that needed to be resolved, like we had to fix one of our engines and and you can only, you know, exert so much effort to try and make other people do what you want them to do. And And we just, luckily, we were kind of shut down in trying to get out of St. Martin quickly. We ended up spending, instead of a week there, we ended up spending three months there. And it was the absolute best thing that happened to us because we learned to slow down. We learned to be where we were. We met people that have become lifelong friends of ours. We got to learn the, the beauty of exploring something or a place slowly and deeply rather than just dropping in and kind of making a lap around the island and 24, 48 hours moving on to the next island. Uh, learning that there's just, if you, if we slow down, and 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 let ourselves open our minds and eyes and ears to to what's there. There's there's so much richness richness in almost every place. And so uh, we had a plan, Armin, but that plan got chucked pretty early on. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, and it was like I say, it was, it was the best thing that happened to us.
1: How did this whole experience change you as a family? Do you think?
2: Oh, that's a great question. I would say, in a word, I would say it galvanized us. And and really, I think it it opened us up to, for me, I think one of the most important things was that we became very comfortable with uncertainty and, and dealing with uncertainty. Uh, because I think as a dad and, and most dads and parents in general, and I think kids as well, we all want security. We want to know that everything's going to be okay. We want to know that we're going to have enough money to take care of ourselves, we've got healthcare and you know and all these things and we want our kids to succeed in life and and we don't want to we don't want to botch it up too badly for ourselves or or them and and what I learned for me is so often you know hey we're going to go from this island we're going to now sail to that island and and I guess the one that's in my mind right now is we were leaving Puerto Rico and we were heading to the Bahamas and this was the biggest jump that we'd ever made it was about 500 miles and it was going to be several days open ocean and lots of you know, all kinds of new variables that I'd never dealt with as a dad or a captain or a husband. And and we were able to deal with one thing after another. You know, we weather came up that we weren't expecting, a, a kind of what we call sheet lightning where there's lightning up in the clouds, but it never comes down, which just made me sweat more, you know, just nervous as anything, And I, but we were able to deal with it. And then um, our fuel gauges were broken and we ran out of, we miscalculated and ran out of fuel in one engine because we were trying to motor sail. Um, and we learned, you know, we figured out how to deal with that. And then, you know, we're, we've been at sea sea for five days, nonstop around the clock. And we're all just emotionally, physically exhausted. And we get to this Island and we're about to pull into this anchorage. And I'm looking at the beach through my binoculars and all I, I just see these, this big long line of jagged teeth sticking up out of the water and I passed the binoculars to Emily and I said, Do you do you see the reef that I see that's completely closing us off from this anchorage? And she sees it too, and I'm like, It's not on the charts and you know, but that's where we're supposed to go Otherwise, you know, if we don't get in there we have to sail through another night and we were just spent. And um, we zoomed in real close onto the charts on our iPad. We were using navigate and Sure enough, if you go close enough, there's this teeny little reef, which is big enough to stop a boat, but there was this little gap of maybe 25 feet wide where we could cut in, and uh, we, you know, the kids knew what to do, and we got the boat lined up, we mm. got the sails down, wow. and, and, you know, we were able to lace in and, and get there, but you just realize that things are going to come up, and you can't solve every problem from 100 miles out. Sometimes you just got to wait. I guess for me, the lesson I learned is wait and let things emerge. Yeah. And and give things time to to evolve and don't feel like you have to have it all planned out and and you know, you don't have to have all the answers before you, you cast right. off and, and take a take a risk.
1: We're completely out of time, but I just want to ask you one more yes or no question. Would you do it again? A
2: hundred percent, absolutely. Okay.
1: All <laughs> right. Eric Orton, thank you very much. He's the author of seven or co author of seven at CY New York City Family Cast Off Convention for a Life Changing Year on a sailboat. Thank you.
2: Thank you,
1: Armin. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brant, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. Well, it's March, so you know what that means. The Parents at Play team headed out to New York Toy Fair last month in February to check out all the newest toys and games. Some of this year's trends are a continuation of last year's, albeit somewhat updated. For example, dinosaurs, mermaid sequins, you know, the kind that flip from one color to another, llamas, unicorns, glitter, everything, narwhals, and coding games and toys are everywhere as are blind bags, do-it-yourself-and-make-it-yourself kits, toys that require or interact extensively with apps, and poop. Yes, all sorts of poop in all sorts of ways. And the winner for combining trends goes to... glitter poop that uses an app. Wow. Unicorns. Yes, they're still as popular as ever. However, in the spirit of inclusiveness, now anything can have a magical horn. Cat? Yes. Llama? Of course. Marshmallow? Yes. Even you, little sugar-spun bit of sweetness. If you like it, you'd better put a horn on it right now. Otherwise, someone else will. Bling. Sorry, but your world is going to get even more sparkly than it already is. There are lots of kids out there that let kids make things for themselves, like soaps and bath bombs or makeup, and now there's oh so much glitter. Well, not just glitter. An amazing variety of toys, games, and craft kits now come with bedazzler-type items to add rhinestones to your hair, clothing, stuffed toy, or whatever your little heart desires. Sequins and all manner of shiny things can be applied to just about anything, and sometimes taken off and reapplied over and over and over again. Foxes. What did the fox say? The poor fox is a sad reminder of viral videos gone by, but that won't stop you from seeing a fox around nearly every corner. So while you may not remember what the fox says, Parents at Play says that foxes are awesome and one will be appearing in your house in the not-too-distant future. Owls, alpacas, llamas, and narwhals. Fox also says that he's invited his best buds, owl, alpaca, llama, and narwhal, who's the closest thing we have to an actual unicorn in the real world, into the cool kids' club. Slime. Slime is everywhere, in everything, and yes, sometimes it's even glittery. You can thank YouTube for that. Giant plush. Super soft, extra squishy, mushy plush animals are gaining in popularity and oftentimes in size. These incredibly plush and huggable toys range in size from backpack clips to giant beanbag-type chairs and everything in between. Backpack clips. Well, while we're on the topic of backpack clips, when was the last time you saw a backpack that wasn't laden down with them? Yeah, same here. They're already popular, and that trend shows no sign of slowing down. Hopefully, all those clips won't make your child's backpack so heavy that there won't be any room for books. Wands. They're everywhere. Sometimes they're sold with toys and games. Sometimes they are the toy and game. They make sounds, hold glitter, shoot glitter, oh yay, and of course are very, very glittery. You'll see wands in all sorts of places, and that's even without counting the ever-popular and only getting more so Harry Potter and Fantastic Beasts franchises, each with a multitude of their own wands and wand games to choose from. Wingardium Leviosa, those will be flying off shelves this year. You can find a lot more reviews of toys, games, and activities and all sorts of great stuff to do with your family at our website, parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. But don't go yet because there's a lot more of this magical Parents at Play show coming right up.
0: More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brought after this. From the MrDad.com radio network.
3: All right, class. Let's hear what everyone did this weekend. Jill?
0: Well, I raised my older sister to a big oak tree. It was at least a hundred years old. My mom said I must have set a record or something. And then we went down by a stream and perched up on this Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week and find the fun, adventurous you. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network.
1: Hey there, and welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. Thanks for sticking with us. I'm Armin Broth, the founder of MrDad.com. The best parenting advice that Hillary Frank receives doesn't come from parenting gurus, but from friends and podcast listeners who use their creativity to flee moments of desperation. In Hillary's new book, one mother threatens to sing in public anytime her daughters argue. Another discovers that the best way to put her kids to sleep is to bark like a dog while she's out driving. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Hilary Frank about her collection of unusual techniques that parents use in stressful situations to calm their children and themselves. These weird parenting wins work for parents with children of all ages, from using the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme song to lull a colicky infant, to convincing her kids that Toys R Us is a membership-only club, parents in Hilary's book are as ingenious as they are eccentric. They use their tricks to foster fun, inspire their kids to diversify their appetites, stop sibling rivalry, cultivate independence, develop manners, and even talk to their parents. Moms and dads are masters of finding imaginative ways to salvage time, money, and their sanity. So sit back and get ready for some relatable, sometimes hysterical victories that will inspire you to stop searching for perfection and just embrace your humanity. Or better yet, volunteer to text for them. It might be a little awkward, but believe me, you'll live.
0: Learn more at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Braun. My guest for this part of today's show is Hilary Frank, who's the author of Weird Parenting Wins, Bathtub Dining, Family Screams, and Other Hacks from the Parenting Trenches. Hilary, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: So tell us where these parenting hacks came from.
3: Yeah, so I have a podcast called The Longest Shortest Time, and I became a mom in 2010, And when I um, first became a parent, I read a lot of books about how to soothe the baby and how to nurse the baby and how to get her to stop crying. And some of those tips worked for me, but often they didn't. And when they didn't, I felt like a failure and I felt like there must be something wrong with me or with my kid And then after I'd been a parent for a couple of years, I realized the things that worked for me were not things I had read in books. They were things that I made up um, in moments of desperation. And so I asked the Longest Shortest Time audience if they had things like this, that they had just made up that worked for them um, as parenting strategies. And the things that came in were so hilarious. You know, they, they were things like, the dad who pig snorted in his baby's ear to get her to stop crying. And um, I, I started thinking, you know, we could really keep collecting these and make them into a book.
1: And lo and behold, here it is. Here it is. So for those who haven't listened to the podcast, uh, The Longest Shortest Time refers to what?
3: It refers to, you know, <laughs> the... the. Um, the thing in parenting where you feel like it's never going to end, and this is your new forever, but then inevitably um, every stage feels like a blip.
1: Yeah, that you wish you could go back and extend.
3: Exactly, some of it. <laughs> so you're
1: right. It's so not not all the diaper changing part, but yeah, most most of the other things. Yeah. So let's let's start at the in, in the beginning I guess. I don't want to have you go through every single one of these, but tell us about mm-hmm. some of the the ways to soothe screaming children. So there's the pig snorting in the ear. What yeah. was what was another fave?
3: So um I love the one with the parents who take turns charging their electric toothbrushes as like an alternative to white noise. They um they use the buzzing toothbrush almost like a, <laughs> a like a conductor's baton <laughs> to get the baby to sleep. Um,
1: and what what age baby is that supposed to be working for?
3: You know, for a little baby. Okay. For for like you know, like three months old. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. If, if it
1: works, all right. So.
3: Yeah. Um, People find all kinds of white noise alternatives. There was actually even one mom who, like, turns on white noise on her radio, like, gets between stations in order to get the white noise in the car. Um, And then there's the mom who dog barks to get her kid to stop crying. And some of these are, like, you know, they work so well that you almost regret that you tried them in the first place because now this mom has to dog bark in the car like for entire car rides to get her <laughs> kids to stop crying.
1: <laughs> so what do, what do these people say to you when they're submitting something like this? Hey, here's a cool idea or what well, how does so, how does the know, conversation go?
3: Right. So it started out as a blog post where people were just um, submitting comments on this blog post. And then um once I knew I was actually making a book, I made a formal submission form on the Long Shortest Time website. So, and I um, divided it up into categories, so like how to soothe a screaming child, um, eating, potty training, communication with older kids, and then people could submit specifically under those categories.
1: Ah, okay, and so there's, there's 12 chapters, but I, are there more, more categories than that?
3: Um, no, there were there were the categories that are in the book.
1: Ah, okay. And if is it still open? Are you working on volume two?
3: Not currently, um, but I'm still taking. People have been submitting them to me through our newsletter, um, and I've been sending out um, exclusive uh, exclusive new weird parenting wins through the newsletter.
1: Okay, so so let's talk about some of the the things I think. Well, I might guess I'm look every single one of these is something that parents have probably had some problems with, hence mm-hmm. their being in the book. But how do you get kids to eat stuff when they're just? I mean, I I had a child, I'm sure a lot of people did, who would only eat the white food group for what seemed like probably two years.
3: Yeah. Um, so one that I love is a mom whose kid had like an eagle eye for veggies mixed into his food. And so she did this thing called Fancy Dinner Night, and what she did was she'd say, okay, it's Fancy Dinner Night, and then she would pull out all their fancy china and crystal goblets, (laughs) but most importantly, she would turn down the lights and bring out the candles, (laughs) so the kid couldn't see the spinach mixed into his marinara.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: very good. Very clever.
3: Um, for an older kid, there was a mom whose kid, she was a single mom, and the kid was giving her a hard time saying he would only have takeout. He didn't like her home-cooked meals, and so um, she snuck home some, um, well, first she, she, they did, some, they did uh, leftovers um, from a restaurant, and she used the takeout containers to pack her home-cooked <laughs> meals in, and he, he thought it was takeout. And then she started buying takeout containers from wholesal- wholesalers so that she could um, continue this practice.
1: So did you hear from any people who got caught by their kids?
3: Yeah. So often it doesn't happen until later. Um, and a lot of these wins for, for the younger kids are white lies. And, but, but there's less of that when the kids get older. But there's one mom who got caught. She was also a single mom, and she had three daughters, and they lived in a place where there were a lot of wolf spiders, and wolf spiders, you know, understandably really frightened the girls. And so she told them they they were, like, having trouble going to sleep, and she told them that spiders notoriously hate the smell of perfume. So she got some cheap perfume and started spraying it, in, around the rooms, and the girls believed that it would keep spiders away. And when they grew up, she admitted to them that this was a lie. Or I guess they they, <laughs> they said, well, why don't you use some perfume to get the spiders out of your house? And she said, oh well, that's not true. I made that up. And they got mad at her. And she was like, come on, look, <laughs> the situation is, I was a single mom. I had three girls. What was I supposed to do? And and. They let her off
1: the hook. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I've had I had a couple of those things with, with one of my kids. I can't even remember what the thing was, but somehow convincing her to try something new that she hated and and at the end of it kind of rubbing it in a little bit and saying, you know what, you just ate. And she, I remember her reaction was just, ooh, oops, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, if I would have known that, I would have screamed, but it was actually good, yeah. All right, so the, you have a, a large category, which is going to be open to, to all sorts of people's different interpretations, but the art of getting your kid to act like a person. Yeah. What does that even mean?
3: I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff that we just take for granted as we get older that are things that people do, like they go to the bathroom in the toilet, and they have hygiene, they, like, trim their nails and <laughs> take care of their boogers, and... uh you know, don't scream in public. Um, and so this, this sort of encompasses all of that stuff.
1: So what are, what are a couple of good ones out of there?
3: Yeah. So, um, let's see, there is, uh, the, the well, some of these come from people who are not parents. So one of them came from, um, a woman who, when she was a babysitter, um, she was she was babysitting two potty trained boys, but they refused to use the bathroom before they left, and before they left the house. And so um, she needed them to go because inevitably one of them would like have to go in there in the car or once they got to the playground. And so she invented something called pea soup, which means they would all go in the same toilet. They would take turns going <laughs> in the toilet. And then naming what their ingredient was for the soup, <laughs> and then they would all they would flush it, which would cook the soup. And so it would be like you know one of them added the bacon, the other added eggs, and others other added hash browns, and then they flush it, and it's soup.
1: Wow, that just sounds revolting. <laughs> the idea. It's super gross. The, the idea kids of it. Love yeah.
3: gross, right? Well, yeah,
1: of course they do. Yeah. I guess yeah. one of the one of the things that often works in these kinds of situations is just giving in. Mm-hmm. And I had mean, a, a friend of mine was telling me that years ago about a his one of his kids was going through a stage where the kid would not get into the car unless he was completely naked. And yeah, you know you think okay, you've spent all this time fighting and know you got to get this on and and, and trying to pull of screaming kids arms and legs into clothes and and then after a while you just say you know what go ahead and they I and mean, they happen to live in Chicago so that was not a, a sustainable type of attitude that the kid could have once winter started to hit
3: <laughs> but you know just like wow
1: that's okay I we'll think just
3: like sometimes those things are best when they come with a bribe so, like, one one of my favorites is this mom who um, has a kid who loves licking her and so – but hates brushing his teeth. So she had this rule, if you brush your teeth, you can lick my face. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> to try that with the dog. <laughs> All right. Talking with Hilary Frank, who's the author of Weird Parenting Wins. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Hilary about more weird parenting wins in different categories. I'm Armin Brot. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, talking with Hilary Frank, who's the author of Weird Parenting Wins. And the subtitle is Bathtub Dining Family Screams and Other Hacks from the Parenting Trenches. What about bathtub dining?
3: Yeah, so I love this trick. Um, a lot of kids don't like eating. I didn't like eating when I was a little kid. And so this one mom came up with a trick where she has her kids eat in the bathtub. And it helps with cleanup.
1: I guess it does, unless you're, you have big chunks that, that somehow get clogged in the drain.
3: Well, I guess so. But you know, put a put a plug in there.
1: That's true. You could do that. <laughs> so that would that was it. There was nothing more complicated than that.
3: Nothing more complicated than that.
1: Okay. So what about stranger anxiety? That's one that that uh, you talk about in the book a little bit. That's one that, uh, a frustrating one. And, you know, you don't want to just hand your kid off to somebody and run off, and and then you'll feel guilty about leaving a screaming child. So how did did this particular parent figure it out?
3: Yeah, so there was one parent who talked about um, in her kid's preschool, um, they have a technique of pushing the parents out the door. Hmm. Um, So the kids feel more in control. And the parents put on a show of being like, "No, I don't want to go," and the kids are pushing them out.
1: Hmm. I remember my my routine when I was dropping my older kids off. At least the the very oldest one at preschool was I'd have to sit with her and draw a scene from Icarus and Daedalus. It's just this a long, elaborate scene about the the wings and the wax and all this other stuff. And and uh, at one point. The teacher told me, "You realize, of course, that you're you're just doing that for you." She doesn't <laughs> want, you know. I, I thought that she wanted it, and that's why I stayed and did it for a half an hour with her every day. But yeah, so how how many of these things do you think are are just for the kids to marvel at the lengths that we will go to amuse
3: them? <laughs> I mean, I think there's definitely. I even have a, a chapter at the end about. Um, strategies, or maybe they're not strategies, but the way, ways that kids have manipulated us. And um, I think, you know, once your kid figures out how to manipulate you, especially once they're a grown-up, then you've truly won because <laughs> <laughs> they've, they've learned from you. Um, but I also think that it's important to feel entertained as a parent. And a lot of the strategies that I've come up with myself are things not only that work on my kid, but keep me entertained.
1: So give us a couple examples of those.
3: Yeah, so like, when my kid wasn't eating lettuce, um, the thing I did was I remembered that there was a video, the very first SNL digital short um, is this video of Andy Samberg and Will Forte, and they're sitting on a brownstone stoop, and they're talking about, um, it's hard to tell exactly what they're talking about, but it seems like they're talking about a friend who died. And they're taking giant chomps out of a um, head of iceberg lettuce (laughs) while they're having this conversation, just inexplicably taking these giant chomps. And I showed it to my daughter and she was like, get me lettuce. (laughs) 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 And I got her a lettuce and she grabbed it out of the um, grocery bag and just started chomping into it, and she's eaten lettuce ever since then. Wow. But that entertained me a lot.
1: Well, you just never know what's going to work here. Yeah. So how do you – what were some of the better ones that you found from people who were trying to figure out ways to keep their kids from from pummeling each other into the dirt?
3: <laughs> um, so one that I love is really sneaky – there's a mom who grounds her two children from playing from playing with each other, which is a whole reverse psychology thing because then they want to play with each other And so they find ways of sneaking like they sneak behind her back to play together.
1: <laughs> she's grounding them from playing with each other because they're fighting because
3: they were fighting. Exactly. Oh okay
1: okay so then so then all of a sudden that that makes them magical
3: yeah um and then there's a family who when they're really at each other's throats the mom throws their unbirthday it's everybody's unbirthday and they make cards for each other and they make a banner and they make a cake and it like creates a sense of goodwill that wasn't there previously
1: did you ever do or find it techniques for dealing with tantrums in public places?
3: Yeah. Um, There's one that I really love, which is um, the mom makes her child blow her away. So that's, you know, the thing that you want to tell your kid when they're throwing a tantrum is to take a deep breath, but nobody responds well to that when they're freaking out. And so this mom tricks her kid into taking deep breaths by saying, blow me away. And the harder the kid blows, the more she pretends to fall backward. And there's another variation on that where a mom makes her fingers into candles and tells her kid to blow out the candles.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. So I guess that serves both purposes. It probably causes some amusement. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. How about needles? That's a big one. Which yeah, is weird, since needle. usually those things don't even hurt. I'm sure that the kids just are, if, if they aren't looking, they're not going to be screaming about it. So is it just getting them to look somewhere else?
3: Right. Um, so there's one mom who does a thing where she gets her daughter to work with her on writing a story about a girl who has to fight the flu dragon. And they come up with a story, and it's, it's cool because then they can— um, Talk about it when they're getting the shot, and they even brought in a glittery vaccine sword, and they like march into the doctor's office ready to like fight the flu, va- the flu vaccine <laughs> together.
1: <laughs> well, wow. all right, that's kind of cute. All right, so there, some of them are funny, and some of them are poignant, I guess, and and yeah. some some of the things are are difficult topics like death. I mean, so you've that's something that whether it's a, the goldfish or a grandparent or, or a parent, mm-hmm. God forbid, um, How do how do people come up with ways of helping their kids through that?
3: So, you know, my daughter came up with one herself that I really love. And she's had a thing where she talks about death a lot and tries to wrap her head around it. And the thing that's really worked is that She will do a thing where she dresses up into her skeleton pajamas. You know, it's like those pajamas that look like a skeleton and they glow in the dark. Mm -hmm. And then she puts on her glowy fingers and her glow-in-the-dark fangs. And she'll go in her closet and turn on the light and get all glowy and then come out into her dark room. And then she pretends to kill me. And I do like, you know, a dramatic death throes (laughs) scene. (laughs) And we play at death, and um, she likes to do it over and over and over again. And she says, like, you know, Mommy, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) And then I go, no, no, don't kill me. And it really helped with her fear of death.
1: All right, we've got time for one more. But I want to say, I think... This is something, uh, as somebody who's been through this three times with teenage daughters, how do you get kids to talk to you?
3: You know, one of my favorites is a poignant one. There was a stepmom who had this teenage stepdaughter who did not want to talk to her. And so she bought a blank journal and left it on the girl's bed with a note to her and invited her to write back and the girl did write back to her and it started this whole like beautiful communication between them
1: hmm. yeah somebody else told me about uh, having having conversations while you're driving so yeah. that you can't that actually can't actually look at each other and so there's no stop rolling your eyes at me young lady kind of things that that, uh, that would typically happen you can just have the conversation without the benefit of any body language getting in the way. It's like texting, but with words.
3: Yes. I heard from a lot of parents who use the car as a way to have real conversations with their kids.
1: Hilary Frank is the creator of the podcast The Longest Shortest Time, and she's also the author of Weird Parenting Wins. Hilary, thanks for joining us. Great to have you.
3: Thanks for having
0: me.